0: So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Had get 30 30 you get 30, but get 20 20 20 to get 20 20 to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. Sold. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Arise, dear listener, and I anoint you with the bracelets of sincerity and the sword of mercy. I proclaim you queen or king, whatever, over all your domain. Hello, welcome to Patented. It's a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. You're very welcome. Coronation's in the air. Hey, we wanted to do something a little bit special, a little bit on point, as it were. And since this podcast is, well, it's really about origin stories, essentially, isn't it? We are bringing you this, the story of the first king of England, who invented the king, as it were. But wait a second, I hear you cry. Charles is king of the United Kingdom. Not just England, and we should be looking at the origins of kings and queens of Scotland and Wales and Ireland, as well as England. And of course you are right, so I apologise, we've only got half an hour, so we had to pick one, so we've gone with England. Don't blame me, that's beyond my pay grade. Anyway, my guest and guide to the birth of England, as it were, is none other than the wonderful Matt Lewis. Matt hosts the other history hit podcast, Gone Medieval, all about, you've guessed it, medieval things. I'm sure many of you are already fans of Gone Medieval and will have no trouble at all keeping track of all the strange names that people had back then. But if you're like me and struggle, then don't worry. Do your best, and it's fine to lose track of the odd Ethel, Bread, the Wise, etc., here and there. Anyway, without further ado, join me. Come, let us travel back in our medieval DeLorean into the mists of time in search. Of the very first King of England and the origins of the coronation ceremony, which is all a bit odd, that have stayed with us to this very day. Welcome back to the show, Matt. It's lovely to have you back. Thanks for having me again, Dallas. Seems just the other day we were discussing medieval monks. It was, I think, Mr. Bacon and all his inventions. Hey, listen, happy coronation day or period of time. Are you quiching it this year? What's the deal?
2: I will be watching. I mean, as a historian, I don't know how you could not watch the first coronation in 70 years, the first one in most people's lifetime. It's going to be a fascinating experience. It really is, isn't it? I'm going to
1: make my quiche. And I'm going to watch it. And I keep seeing little news clippings of odd things that are going to happen. Like I saw a thing today. They said, oh, we're going to have bits of the true cross are going to be embedded in the Prince of Wales cross, whatever that is.
2: The one thing that might be interesting to watch out for this year, there are rumours, and there are only rumours at the moment, that when Charles is anointed, it's always done under a canopy And it's always done out of sight. But there are rumours that Charles is going to have a clear top on the canopy and it will actually be filmed. And if it is, it'll be the first time that anyone outside of a king and an archbishop of Canterbury have seen a king being anointed in 1500 years. Even the people in the abbey don't normally get to see this. I would
1: have thought part of the thing about that,
2: you know, you have a bit of tarpaulin
1: over them, so you can't see what's going on. It's that it's magical. It's like pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The whole point about that is it's only
2: the priest's Doesn't that just spoil the magic a bit? It does. It's a bit of the Wizard of Oz moment, isn't it? You know, all the magic's going on behind the curtain. Nobody look at all of this. Don't look. And it's always been such a sacred moment that people weren't allowed to see it. I mean, maybe it just marks a change in the whole country. You know, we're not quite as religious as we used to be. No, I know that. But the whole point, it's a
1: kind of magical ceremony. It's imbued with these great traditions and mystical things and... Arcane bits and bobs. That's kind of the fun of it. The idea of having a kind of sunroof (laughs) on on the thing is maybe I'm just old fashioned. I suppose actually I remember, and I remember, I don't remember at all the Queen's coronation, but the very fact that that was televised at all caused all kinds of hullabaloo. And everyone was like, no, you must not televise it.
2: Yeah, it's always been such a sort of sacred moment for a small gathering of important people within Westminster Abbey.
1: Yeah, I take it you'll be there front and center, front row seats. Of course, I've
2: got my invitation. Have you got your invitation? Of course, yeah.
1: Here we are on Patented again. This is a podcast about the history of inventions. So we thought we'd do, who invented kings? <laughs>
2: <laughs> invented <laughs>
1: or Who invented England? It's like, where did where the hell did that come from? My English history is terrible. like Massive gaps in my knowledge. I'd never really thought. I went back to Wikipedia, a list of kings all the way back. What's English King 1.0? Can you tell us where we start with this?
2: There are slightly mushy, different ways that you can measure this. If you want to look for the first king of the English, we're talking about a guy called Athelstan. Let's go there. And Athelstan was around in the early 10th century. He's a grandson of Alfred the Great. So Alfred the Great had used the title king of the Anglo-Saxons. He of the burning cakes. He of the burning of the cakes. He'd been known as king of the Anglo-Saxons, but this is a time when the Vikings were invading. So England is sort of cut in half. You've got this Danelaw area in the northeast and you've got Alfred with some control over Wessex and parts of the Kingdom of Mercia in the southwest.
1: Wessex and Mercia, just explain where we are and what they are.
2: So Wessex is right down on the south towards the southwest coast. The capital is Winchester and it's a kingdom that spreads across the south there. Mercia is the area around the Midlands of Wales, so quite a big kingdom and covers the west midlands and east midlands that we know today can i just check the romans have
1: buggered off at this point haven't they they're gone
2: yeah so the romans go around about 450 ish something like that so we're several hundred years after the romans have gone
1: so there's no king at that point just sort of fill me in that kind of mushy bit there's no king like is england a country even at that point
2: no i mean england doesn't exist the romans go there is a huge power vacuum and into that are sucked particularly a lot of northern germanic tribes So we get the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. And Angles and Saxons is where we kind of get the name Anglo-Saxon from. There are Celtic people who are sort of pushed into Wales, Scotland, across the island, and perhaps down the southwest Cornwall sort of area. But what you end up with is a bunch of warlords and a whole patchwork of small warlords ruling what then gradually grow into small kingdoms that then become slightly bigger kingdoms.
1: Okay. And then how did that kind of resolve elegantly into, okay, we've got a country, we need some form of king type thing.
2: Well, for a long time, you end up with what's called the Heptarchy. So in Anglo-Saxon England, there are seven kingdoms effectively. You've got Northumbria, you've got Mercia, you've got East Anglia, Essex, Kent and Sussex, and then you've got Wessex down in the southwest. Are they kind of like countries,
1: even though you know we recognise the names as counties? Would they be thought of as separate countries.
2: They were effectively, there was a king of each of these places. Northumbria, for example, Northumbria is made up of smaller kingdoms that come together. And lots of these places are the amalgamation of several small kingdoms, smaller tribes. It's easy to see, I guess, England as inevitable from that conglomeration coalescing of all of these smaller kingdoms, but it probably wasn't. For a long time, there is this big seven in England. And then alongside that, you've got princes in Wales. You've got a King of Scots. You've got a King of Strathclyde and plenty going on in Ireland as well. Okay. And
1: Vikings, they're coming in as well, presumably,
2: aren't they? Or is that a bit later? Well, the Vikings arrive towards the end of the 8th century. The most famous raid on Lindisfarne comes towards the end of the 8th century. And then they start to sort of push south. And this is why Alfred the Great, who was King of Wessex, is so famous, I guess, is because he manages to resist the apparently irresistible onslaught of the Vikings as they push further south. I can't remember how he did that. With cakes, not with cakes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he burns the cakes while he's thinking about how to do it. So if you boil it down to one thing, he uses this system of what are called burrs. So these are something like we might imagine a castle being today, but they're big structures, but they're more for communal defence. So you would dot these burrs around and if there's a raid, everyone piles into the burr behind the walls and is protected from the Viking raids and they become a big power base from which he's able to sort of resist the Viking attacks.
1: Got it. So that's the sort of state of play. Athelstan, spelt with one of those AEs joined together, and I can never remember what they're called. Do you know what?
2: I can't remember now. But yeah. And why did he become king? And how did England happen? Athelstan is Alfred's grandson. So when Alfred passes away in 899, he's succeeded by his son, who is known as Edward the Elder. And that's to distinguish him from other Edwards that come later. There's a guy called Edward the Martyr and all sorts of things. Anglo-Saxon England, we were still giving these kind of names to our kings. So Edward the Elder succeeds his dad in 899. He's kind of in his mid-20s, rules for about 25 years. You know, he's there for a quarter of a century, but we don't know very much about him. His reign isn't very well documented. And he succeeds as King of Wessex. So what Alfred has negotiated is sort of a division of England along roughly what is Watling Street. So the old Roman road of Watling Street that goes from the northwest to the southeast, it's now the A5. So you can still follow the path of Watling Street on the A5. And that's the divide. So Mercia still exists as a kingdom as well in the Midlands, the sort of West Midlands. We've still got Mercia police and all of that kind of thing. So the name Mercia still survives. And there is a guy called Ethelred who is King of Mercy and not Ethelred the Unready, a different Ethelred. How many Ethelreds can you have? You can never have too many, I suppose. The baby books must have been very small because everyone shares about five or six names In medieval history, it's one of the most frustrating things about it.
1: Well, I quite like that. I'm a big fan of having the same name, actually. Like in France, I think you can only choose certain names for children. You can't just have any old thing. You know how Elon Musk's called his daughter or son a kind of sign?
2: Anyway, sorry, I digress. Carry on. Ethelred, but not the unready. Ethelred, not the unready. Is King of Mercy and he marries King Alfred's daughter, a lady named Ethelfled, who is an incredible woman who deserves a podcast in her own right. What was her name? Ethelfled.
1: Ethelfled? I've never heard of Ethelfled.
2: So she is known as the Lady of the Mercians because her husband dies and she effectively becomes ruler of Mercia in his place. And female rule is still something incredibly unusual in the British Isles at this point. So she's known as Lady of the Mercians and rules incredibly well, you know, in 910, she defeats a Viking army at what is either called the Battle of Wensfield or the Battle of Technol. This is around Wolverhampton and I'm from Wolverhampton, so I know about this. Technol is a posh bit, Wensfield is maybe not quite so posh. So I guess it depends whether you want your battle to be in a posh bit of Wolverhampton or not. So she defeats a Viking army there and sort of breaks a lot of the Viking power and a lot of the Viking elite are killed here. So this, again, is continuing her dad's work of really pushing back hard against the Vikings. And Athelstan's dad, Edward the Elder, so Aethelflaed's brother, they make a great team. You know, they're both militarily incredibly capable. They're doing a great job of pushing back. Edward is getting into East Anglia and then to Essex and all of the Danes there are sort of submitting to him. So they're really building on what Alfred had done and starting to push back. But obviously neither of them are going to live forever. So Aethelflaed dies in 918 at the age of about 48. And Edward then kind of Moves in to take a bit of control of Mercia and he continues to push into the East Midlands and he's getting towards Nottingham and all of those kinds of places. And Edward dies then in 924. So when Edward the Elder dies, Mercia almost immediately accepts Athelstan as its new king. So Athelstan becomes king of Mercia. And this is partly because Athelstan had been raised in Mercia with his aunt, Aethelflaed. His dad had remarried and it seems like his stepmom had had a couple of children and Pat's. Athelstan off to his aunt. Ethel fled in the Midlands to be raised there. It's like EastEnders. So much of this stuff is like soap operas. It (laughs) It feels quite soap opera. I'm trying to keep up with who was married to who. Yeah. So Athelstan then is recognised as King of Mercia. Mm -hmm. But his dad is succeeded in Wessex by a guy called Elfweird. Elfweird.
1: That's not his name.
2: Who is Athelstan's half-brother. So this is a son of Edward from his second marriage. So the stepmom that had probably packed Athelstan off Her son succeeds in Wessex, but he dies a few weeks later. And Athelstan then takes him a few months to get control of Wessex, but he ends up being crowned king of Wessex. And one of the interesting things about Athelstan, he never marries and he never has any children. And there is some suggestion that this idea that he doesn't build a dynasty for himself is what allows him to secure the kingdom of Wessex.
1: Wait, he's only the king of Wessex. He's not the king of England. So England doesn't exist at this point.
2: No. I thought he was the first king of England. He is eventually. Oh, okay. I'm jumping ahead. So he starts off as king of Mercia, then becomes king of Wessex as well. So he's almost taken over what his granddad Alfred had, and Alfred had been king of the Anglo-Saxons. So then we get 927, a few years into his reign, he pushes north and he really steamrolls through a lot of the Viking-held lands there. Citric, who is king of Northumbria, dies and Athelstan marches into his territory and takes control of the north of England. So he's now got control of pretty much all of England. He's tearing around. He goes to the borders of Wales at Hereford and he meets all the Welsh rulers and accepts their homage. So they make themselves subservient to him. He heads into the southwest, into what is now Cornwall, and does the same kind of thing. So we've now reached a point around 927 where he's kind of getting control of the whole of what we would call England. And that starts to beg the question of what should he be called? So his granddad had been King of the Anglo Saxons. Seems like there's a think tank going on for what do we call Athelstan with all of the power that he has. So King of the Saxons seems to have been banded around for a little while. But Athelstan settles on using the title in Latin of Rex Anglorum, which is King of the English. So England still doesn't exist. He's identifying himself as King of the English, which English here, I think, relates to.
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: From biblical fame to its fabled great walls, Babylon was home to kings, conquerors, and wonders of the ancient world. But what do we actually know about this legendary city? And how much is still shrouded in mystery? Join me, Tristan Hughes, every Sunday throughout May on the Ancients as we delve into the story of Babylon. We'll be covering topics varying from the King Nebuchadnezzar II and how he forged a massive Babylonian empire. We'll be exploring the mystery of the hanging gardens of Babylon, looking at world-renowned objects such as the Cyrus Cylinder, and also looking at Babylon in the aftermath of one of the most well-known conquerors in the whole of history. Babylon after Alexander the Great. That's all to come this May on the Ancients, every Sunday.
1: That idea of being the king of the English, the people who spoke English, was there a kind of instant national English identity suddenly? Did that appear? Or were people still living in their little kingdoms of Wessex and Mercia and Northumbria and elsewhere?
2: I think you have to imagine that identity isn't changed that quickly overnight. People are going to consider themselves Mercian or Northumbrian. There's been hundreds of years of rivalry between all of these people, and that's not going to go away overnight, particularly because someone's conquered you. It's not always a nice thing to be conquered and to be ruled by someone miles and miles away who considers themselves your conqueror. And I wonder whether that's why he goes for king of the English, so the people who speak English, because the kingdom is full of Danish people, Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Celts. There are lots of different ethnic groups within the islands, but he tries to group them together by the language that they share, perhaps.
0: But
1: was the idea to create a united England, was that the aim Or
2: did it just happen to be? I think it just happened. I mean, I don't think there was ever an inevitability about England becoming a single kingdom because you still end up with Wales and Scotland particularly as separate. You know, I've said before to producer Freddie, who I said, you know, we could have ended up with this whole island being called England. And producer Freddie quite rightly said we could have all ended up with an island called Scotland. There wasn't an inevitability. And we do still have the island divided into three for quite a long time, for centuries after all of this. But you wonder whether the Viking incursions in particular had created a sense of us and themness amongst the Anglo-Saxons, particularly in Wessex and Mercia, where they were resisting. A common enemy is quite a good way to sort of force you together to work together, to push back against a common enemy. And perhaps that begins to create a sense of a more singular national identity that begins to flourish in the years that follow and particularly under Athelstan, he's able to harness that, bring about control of the whole of these kingdoms under one ruler, which enforces that sense of a national identity. Although I'd say it still takes years to properly emerge.
1: We still don't have a national identity. <laughs> That's the, Britain is such a fragmented, multiple-identitied place. It's so weird that somewhere so geographically small can have such insane variation in politics and language and dialect and accents, yeah. It is. You
2: think about accents and language and words that we use for things, they're so different across the span of, as you say, quite a small island that it's probably no surprise that it was difficult for Athelstan in those days because we probably don't have an entirely single national identity now. Can I ask a silly question? Where does the word English come from? Do you know? As far as we can tell, it's a corruption of anglish which is the language of the angles so if we go back to those angles saxons and jutes that came over so the angles originate in a part of jutland which is shaped like a fishhook. so the name angles just means bend similar to what we would think angle means today so anglish seems to be corrupted to english so he's making himself the king of everyone who speaks english that's awesome it just sort of happened. I'm always
1: amazed when people say, Oh yes, such and such steamed into this bit and took it over. How do you take things over? Like, okay, so I'm walking up to the A1, up to Northumberland, and I want to
2: take it over. Like, what do you do? Athelstan is in a fortunate position. So he's militarily, he's inherited quite a strong base. He's quite wealthy because he's got two kingdoms under his belt. And sometimes then it's a matter of timing. So Citric, the king of Northumbria kind of conveniently decides to die for Athelstan. It's great timing. There's another little power vacuum there. So all Athelstan does is take a big army up there and say, how about I be your next king? And no one's willing to argue. Like, do they have a meeting? Not really, because his army's big enough at this point. So they just kill people? Yeah. I mean, he's able to enforce himself militarily to the point that nobody will stand against him and say, no, I'd rather be king. So he's just kind of accepted. And he goes on to build even further from this. So 934, he invades the lands of the King of the Scots, a guy called Constantine, because Constantine was refusing to acknowledge Athelstan as his overlord. And by the end of that year, Constantine was forced to make peace and Athelstan drags him down south with him. And Athelstan starts to organise all of these big meetings of all of the rulers of various parts of Britain, but they're all described as sub-kings. So he's the only king amongst all of these sub-reguli, a bunch of junior kings. So Athelstan now has control of the whole of the British Isles. What we would call today England, Scotland, Wales, he's kind of overlord of all of that. Can
1: I ask you about his coronation, just because we're thinking about that. Do you have any information of what the ceremony might have looked like? Like, How did you crown a king back then? It's like, we don't have anything to go by. There's no traditions because this is King 1.0, as it were. Did they just sort of make it up as they went along? And
2: There are existing rules for how you make... Because there'd been all of these kings all over the various kingdoms of Britain. Yes, I suppose so, yeah. There were rules for how you made a king. So one of the oddities of Anglo-Saxon England is that they elected kings. There was no right of succession from a father to a son or anything like that. So you quite often see the line of Anglo-Saxon kings will pass to brothers or uncles to avoid underage kings or people who are kind of inappropriate so you get this body called the Witan the full name is the Witanengamot which is probably where Harry Potter gets the Wizengamot from which is essentially we might recognise as something like a proto-parliament in Anglo-Saxon England it's a big council meeting of all the senior nobles churchmen who get together to advise the king but they have the right to elect a king at this point is there like
1: a crowning
2: a crown goes on ahead so in terms of the ceremony so the first time that we have a record of the consecration of a king in the british isles is in 574 and that's a guy called king Aidan in dalriata which is a kingdom on the west coast of wales that also takes in part of northeastern ireland and he's consecrated in 574 so then the first record that we have for the details of a coronation, so the order of service for a coronation is actually from the 9th century, so the 800s. So by the time Athelstan becomes king, this does exist. And it's incredibly similar to what we'll probably see for Charles III's coronation in 2023. The main difference here might be that they used a helmet rather than a crown. So Athelstan is the first king who we know uses a crown. What's the origin of a crown then? If it
1: was a helmet that morphed into a crown, what was the thinking of a crown with spikes as if you would draw a crown? Like, do we know where that comes from?
2: I don't know, but I'd suspect that you're looking back at things like Roman imperial, you know, the laurel wreaths and things like that. And it's that move from a solely military aspect to something a bit more spiritual, imperial, Using a helmet implies that you're a warlord. Using a crown implies that you're a king or an emperor of some kind. Basically hat-based symbolism. I've been saying a lot recently. It's incredible how across space and time and disconnected societies, the way that you show your power and authority is to put something on your head.
1: Automatically think of, sort of Julius Caesar now, laurel wreaths and
2: crowns. Yeah, but you think of pharaohs, you think of the Incas, all of these civilizations, the way that you show that you're in charge is to put something posh on your head i don't understand it is
1: it kind of like the head is sort of where you are like if i think about where i am i'm maybe an inch behind my eyes somewhere in there that's sort of where i think i am so i suppose the head is yeah and i guess it's the most visible
2: part you know if you stand in a crowd you want something that everyone can see at the center of it but it is just a weird thing that everybody does it so we've got crowns are there any other things
1: of those early ceremonies that we know of.
2: We know that the king was also given a staff. Classic. Which would probably represent his pastoral duties. You know, the regalia has grown from this one. So the earliest one talks about a helmet and a staff being used. One thing that we do know is that this coronation service of the ninth century ordered the singing of an anthem called Zadok the Priest, which still exists today. Who was Zadok the Priest? So Zadok the Priest was the guy who crowned Solomon. Who was the famous song, Zadok the Priest, the composer. Handel's music is the one that we recognise now. So it's the theme tune to the Champions League. That's a... De-de-de-de-de. No, that's, that's World of Sports with Dickie Davis. <laughs> Sorry,
1: but Yeah, it's the big choral piece. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, so Handel created this for the coronation of, I think, George III, but he based it on this existing piece of music that has been part of the coronation for 1,200 years now.
1: Are we going to have Zadok the Priest in Charles's coronation? Absolutely. I'm 100% sure we will. Are we going to have World of Sport theme tune at Charles's
2: coronation? Actually, not World of Sport. What's the one that goes... I don't know. I'll tell you what. I've got my invitation. I'm on the front row. I'll take my phone. And if they don't play it, I'll play the theme soon. See, if they did all that and then they have the World of
1: Sport theme tune, that would be amazing. But they won't. But anyway, what is the weirdest arcane bit of ceremony that dates back to the year dot that we're going to see at
2: Charles's coronation, do you think? You know, you mentioned the anointing and what have you, but there's other things as well. There's so much that goes on. So the coronation that will happen is essentially the same as the order that we have for the ninth century. So you get this recognition. So because kings are elected, they're presented to the abbey and you'll see the Archbishop of Canterbury ask on all sides of the abbey, do you accept this person as your king? Nobody's ever said no Not that I'm encouraging anyone to at Charles's coronation, but I don't know what would happen if someone said no. It would be funny. The bit of a marriage where they say, if anyone has any objection, speak now. And everyone feels really nervous because secretly you go, actually, it's probably not
1: going to last, but I can't say anything.
2: But anyway, yeah. yeah. I'm not encouraging anyone to object to Charles's kingship, but there is a requirement to ask those within the Abbey if they accept him. And then he'll give his oath. Then he'll be anointed. Then he'll be crowned given all of the various regalia, and then it would take the homage of the people within the abbey. So the only real difference from the ninth century coronation order there is that the oath came at the end instead of coming second. That's the only thing that's been switched around. But in terms of odd things that you could bring back, I mean, the whole ceremony is a little bit weird and archaic. It is 1,200 years old. That's why we like it, though. I was really moved in the Queen's
1: funeral because... I mean, obviously, it was the passing of someone who'd been part of all our lives, but also just the breaking of the staff and all these little traditions. There was something really, that ancientness about it.
2: I mean, that goes back to medieval times when everybody in the king's household, when the king died, they would break their staffs of office and throw them into the grave to mark the fact that their service had ended and you wait to be appointed by the next king, hopefully. But there's a real division, the end of something and the beginning of something else. We love ritual, don't we? Humans love it. We love the theatre. It's theatre, isn't it, really? That's what all this is. It is. There's no practical reason to snap your staff of office in half and throw it into a grave. It's entirely symbolic. It's poetry.
1: Yeah. People always say, oh, anti-monarchists will always say, whoa, what's the point of all this? I don't know. There is no point, but there is something poetic and theatrical about it, which I like anyway.
2: Yeah. And I kind of think some of these things. A coronation, you know, in 2023, what does a coronation mean? Well, for me, it's still an opportunity to think about what kind of country we are. Because if you think about what happens in the coronation briefly, essentially we're asked to accept this ruler. In return, they give an oath to rule well, justly and fairly and all of these kinds of things. It's almost like a contract being formed between the head of state and all of the people of the nation. And so we expect that that's how we'll be governed. We happen to elect governments to rule, but we expect them to rule justly and fairly. They may not always, but you know we have some kind of recourse out of that. So when a contract is created, people can breach that contract and there can be remedy there in removing them and dealing with them. So it still talks to the way that we would like a country to be ruled today, I think.
1: That's a lovely way of putting it, but it is so deeply symbolic and you know, magical and mysterious. and uh, Yeah, I, I think I'm a fan. Listen, Matt, thanks so much for coming. Can I just ask, actually, so from Athelstan as King One, how many coronations have we had? Do you know?
2: I worked out that Charles will be the 30th king in a row to be crowned sitting on St Edward's throne, the coronation chair. Crikey. Is it a stone of Scone under the chair? The stone of Scone will be back under there. So that was returned to Scotland in the 1990s, but it's coming back down for the coronation. And so that was commissioned by Edward I DHL or FedEx? How are they getting it down? Doing it at UPS, I think. Yeah, I want to find out how
1: they're bringing it down. Is it like a transit van? I wonder that? if it's on a train or a plane or. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. It's the stone of destiny, or do they just shove it in the back of a Uber? It was stolen by students once,
2: wasn't it? So it's potentially a target.
1: Yeah, it was. I remember that. Well, that's what I was thinking, and I like the idea of it just coming down in an Uber and nobody kind of knowing about it. It's probably the best way to do it. I'm going to find
2: out how they're going to bring it down. Maybe it's there already. Who knows? Anyway, sorry I interrupted you. No, no, that's fine. There are bits that are missing from previous coronations that could come back. All of it is a bit weird and pageantry there. There used to be the monarch could wear bracelets of sincerity as part of the regalia. Crikey, what's a bracelet of sincerity? There's rings involved, so very similar to the marriage ceremony idea again. And they could wear literal bracelets, but they were called the bracelets of sincerity. Everything is supposed to represent something religious or pastoral or military to some extent. The coronation feast doesn't exist anymore. There used to be a massive banquet after the coronations. Hey, There's a quiche. It's moved from coronation chicken to coronation quiche. Yeah. So they could have a massive feast of coronation quiche in Westminster Hall immediately afterwards. There used to be a procession that went the day before from the Tower of London to Westminster Hall. And then on the day they went from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey. And in medieval times, they used to lay down this cloth for the king to walk on. And all of the cloth that was inside the abbey up to the altar was cut at the doorway Everything inside was the abbey's fee for holding the coronation. Everything outside was cut into pieces and distributed amongst the crowd because it was valuable material, valuable cloth.
1: Well, I hope we'll be doing that again. So
2: we could do that with quiche.
1: You know, we could just distribute quiche amongst the crowd. Hey, Matt, listen, thanks very much for coming. I know you'll be watching the coronation, but thank you for painting us a lovely picture of coronation number one. It's been great. Yeah, and enjoy the weekend and may your quiche be not soggy. No soggy bottoms. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for listening. I will never look at another coronation in the same way again. So thank you very much to Matt for that. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the series, don't forget to listen to other episodes. Don't forget to hit subscribe and like and do all the things. Don't forget to tell your friends and your family all about it. That would be very kind. And don't forget as well, get in touch as ever. If you've got a suggestion for a topic or a subject that we should cover, you can email us at patented at
0: They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive –